Welcome to the Principles of Performance podcast, where we discuss how to optimize your health, fitness, and performance. Drawing on decades of experience of working as coaches, consultants, and trainers to top performers, athletes, and teens from professional sports to top universities to the U.S. military, Eric Degatti and Mike Perry discuss topics and strategies of how to perform at your highest level and be your very best. Join us and our friends and colleagues who are leaders in the fitness and performance industry as we investigate and challenge the most popular training, nutrition, lifestyle, and recovery protocols. Here we are with episode number 57 of the Principles of Performance podcast. I am your host, Eric Degatti, and I am flying solo today as my co-host and friend Mike Perry is traveling. Um, and I did not want to miss out on the opportunity to get this guest on. It's someone I haven't seen in quite a while. Um, uh, he and I spoke at a FMS summit about 10 years ago, and I've been following his work. And when I put together my, my list of people that I wanted to get on the show, he was very high on there. So I'm excited to, to, to grab him here. And uh, I'm going to apologize for the long bio. And it, it took me some time to actually cut it down to this long because he's done <laughs> he's done quite a bit. Dr. Brandon Marcello holds a PhD in sports nutrition from Baylor, uh, an MS and BS in exercise science from Marshall. And he's He's recognized as an author, researcher, and international presenter, routinely speaks around the world on a number of topics pertaining to elite level performance, and his work appears in numerous journals, textbooks, textbooks and periodicals. Uh, and he's been doing this for about 25 years. He's worked with some of the most high-level individuals and organizations in human performance in the world, starting back to his time as a performance specialist at IPI, which is part of the IMG Academy down in Florida. And then he joined Mark Verstegen uh, out in Tempe, Arizona to uh, help work with Exos, or formerly Athletes Performance. And then from there, he served as a consultant with Draper Laboratories for the U.S. military and special forces, a bunch of Division I programs, international sports federations, as well as Adidas, Under Armour, Nike. Uh, he also served as the director of performance for USA Softball and Stanford University. And now he serves as a chief innovation officer for JAG Consulting. So you've taken about every dream job that I could think of, Brandon. Uh, so uh, I'll have to pick something else now. Good to have you on the show. No, I appreciate you. Thanks for having me. <laughs> so, like I said, I've been following your work quite closely and you put out some really good stuff. And one of the things I like is you put out this tweet recently uh, and, and it is a great quote said, one should not start with the assumption that a claim cannot be true any more than one should start with the assumption that a claim must be true. As much as we know, quote unquote, know in sports science, how much do you think we still, we really don't know? And at best, we're working on an assumption. I think we're working on assumptions a lot of the time, Right. And I think that's okay as long as people recognize that we are working with assumptions because making one assumption is okay, but when we start stacking those assumptions, um, that's when we really deviate in the sports science world when we're trying to improve the process from data to, this, to decisions, right? Because that's all we're trying to do is improve that decision-making process. Um, and those assumptions can can take us completely in, in the wrong direction. So tell me if I'm on the right path here. One of the things I try to explain to clients that I work with is that we can't make these A to C jumps. So what I mean by that is A is this thing, a supplement, uh, an exercise routine or, or modality or something like that, which creates B. And we know that B helps create C, which is gaining muscle or speed or so forth. But we can't assume that just because we do A, we're going to get C. Am I making a, a pretty good you know, a layman's explanation of that? Yeah, I, I think that's fair to say. You know, I think the thing to remember is that there's two ways of looking at this, right? Like we want to look at human performance and human wellness health as like it's a schematic of like whatever circuitry, right? That you know, if you pass electricity through this route, it's going to turn this on, which will turn that on, which will cause this whole cascade of effects, right? That can be mapped out, that can be planned, that's engineering, right? humans vary widely, right? We come in all different shapes, forms, sizes, backgrounds. We bring our experiences with us. Um, we bring our own, you know, nervous system with us. You know, we are all truly an N of one and we forget the human condition can 
change the way that circuitry is routed. Um, and people may not respond the same way. You see it all the time with like, you know, medications, right? Someone takes a specific, a Tylenol doesn't work for me. You'll hear people say, doesn't do anything for me. Okay, other people works just fine. Why is that, right? Why do some people are allergic to peanut butter and others are not, right? These are the N of ones that our genetics, our environment, our upbringing, nature versus nurture, nature and nurture, I should say, um, create that, that, that human condition. It's funny you say that because I've started to add a caveat at the end of some of my analogies because I always try to give analogies to clients so they can better kind sure. of grasp things. And, you know, we, we always kind of lean on those car analogies, right? Well, this is like your chassis and this is like your wheels. And we like to use that analogy. I said, the only thing that I'm going to put an asterisk next to it is that your car doesn't have feelings. You do. Yes. Right. And so yeah, 100%, 100%. Uh, that human brain changes a whole bunch of stuff, whether it's intent, whether it's habit forming, whether it's um, uh, it, motivation, that's going to change a whole lot of stuff that, that we can't necessarily predict from one thing to the next. Yep. So when we talk about things we kind of don't know, how much do you think maybe that some of those answers lie outside of our little sports science silo and not so much necessarily the answers, but the, the mindset and the thought process to get there? Uh, I think it's it's huge to, you know, we've spoken about this, right? Like learning from other disciplines is critical. And many times these other disciplines have thought about these things, have considered these things and have even answered these things, right? Um, but we get very caught up in our own world and we forget to look outside uh, um, to maybe expedite the learning process or to have somebody you know, solve our problem or to give our problem a look through their particular lens, right? Like, you know, the example I always use is, um, you know, Microsoft Excel. So that has been used for years for people to write programs, right? Strength training programs, people will use Excel. There's some other things right now, but, you know, for years it was Excel. But, you know, one of the things that I did when I was at Stanford is I brought in the accounting department to give everybody a tutorial on Excel because it's an accounting software. And if anybody's gonna know more about it and can solve our problems and teach us shortcuts and improve the ability to utilize this tool would be the accounting department. So leveraging on these people that have specific domain expertise, I think is, is critical and overlooked. And but at the end of the day, it saves a lot of time. Um, and that can be applied to human performance too, right? Like, you know, instead of relying on your own research to find something, reach out to a researcher who actually studies that, right? Find a sleep researcher, find somebody who specializes in nutrition or find somebody, whatever the problem is, right? Um, I think it's best to be answered via them, right? Um, you know, another example is when the paleo diet was coming out and, and gained a lot of popularity. I reached out to the anthropology department. Who's going to know more about paleo diet than anthropology, right? it was great that they could provide me their perspective and their insights on something that was just like, that has a scientific background. And they could say, yeah, you know, in Peru, we have a lot of research that says that they did eat grains. Okay. Right. And then we went on from there, but it's just, you know, the, this, a, a being able to, to your point, being able to solve a problem through multiple domains or having people look at it maybe differently through their lens of expertise, I think helps solve the problem um, in a unique way. And I think even from the approach aspect, one of the things I love when I was going through, do some research on your website, you have a section, one page of like stuff that you love to learn and think about. And not one of those books has anything to do with sports science, but I'm probably sure that you've figured out how to take something that applies to your sports science at each one of those. So if you want to kind of talk about maybe a few examples of that. Yeah. I mean, you know, like pulling from everywhere, you know, I, I think is critical and like, you know, what are we trying to do in the world of sports science and whatever it is, right. We're, we're trying to improve the decision-making process. Right. But we're also trying to maybe attain goals faster. Um, and that goal can be unique for everybody. Right. Um, and having a, a broad understanding of a lot of different things helps us achieve that, right? In terms of, like you mentioned, like all the different books, um, you can always pull something from somewhere, right? Whether it's, uh, I was just talking to a colleague about this just recently, like 
a lot of children's books that I was reading for like, you know, how do you, how do you teach your kid to be a good kid? And like, what are parenting skills, right? Those things translate directly into like how you work with athletes, right? Like it's almost the same, right? Giving them choices, allowing them to think they're in control, right? Um, modeling good behavior, um, you know, talking to them a certain way, um, giving them options, giving them choices, giving them feedback, giving them, you know, owning it. So I think there's there's a lot of things, like you said, that, that would be one example that's kind of top of mind because I was just recently speaking with a colleague about it, right? Um, that I think really transcends everything. Like working with athletes is like working with kids, especially if you work with kid athletes, but anyway. Yeah, I mean, the one that, that always sticks out in my mind that I was at a conference that was really more about personal development and business stuff. And they brought up um, the four levels of competence, which Maslow made, you know, popularized. And it was basically it had it had nothing to do necessarily with exercise, but it has everything to do. It's basically the chain of motor learning. You go from this unconscious incompetence. You don't even know what you don't know. You go to conscious incompetence say, man, I really stink at that, but I don't know what to do about it to conscious competence, where if I can really think about it, I could probably do it to where we want to get athletes and, and, and people to perform is it reflexively and where they have this, this unconscious competence and they can go through. So that was kind of like this light bulb that, wow, that applies so elegantly to what I'm trying to teach someone to do a movement, wh whatever it may be, that that's the motor learning pathway. And it yep. wasn't necessarily intended for that. And so that's where I, I see those opportunities to like learn from, from other places. And that's why for, for every book, that I'm reading on, on stuff to, to that's directly applicable. I'm trying to find stuff that may be indirectly applicable that I can pull in. Um, I think Charlie Weingroff has a great expression. He uses uh, when we integrate, he, we interviewed him, he said, I have three books. I have one uh, for you, which is basically a science book to help me better do what I do. One for me to make me a better person so I can better deliver that. And the one to save us from both of us, basically a total escape book. So I, I thought that was a pretty <laughs> cool approach. Um, so uh, there's this interesting phenomenon in, in the last few years where quote unquote science, especially in health and performance has become cool, which, which I would have never thought 25 years ago when I started and, and whether it's the popularity of everyday people wearing um, wearable devices to track their sleep and track their HRV and their, their steps, or whether it's the, the, the successful rise of people like doctors, Peter Atia and Andrew Huberman, I was blown away. I went and saw him live at the beacon theater here in New York. And when a scientist fills the beacon sells out, like I had to buy him on a, on a second tier market. Like that's insane to me. How do you, how do you feel this greater public consciousness, uh, and awareness impacts the field as a whole? I think it's good, right? I mean, it's a very good thing that it, it does show that science can truly be translated down and understood to the masses. And I think that's what people like Huberman and Atia are, are doing, right? Um, I also think their approach is very earnest. I think their approach is very authentic. Um, and, you know, they do a great job of like taking these com things that used to be complex and seem to be, you know, sequestered only for the scientific community and translating them down and breaking them down so that anybody can do these things, right? They distill the research very well. Yes, they have critics and, um, but, you know, I think for the most part, they're making science accessible to the masses. Um, the downside of that would be that it almost brings about this ability to skip steps. If I just get in the cold plunge and if I just get my morning sunlight, I will achieve health and happiness, right? And there are some steps along the way that you have to do in addition to those to optimize sleep and to optimize health and to stack the odds in your favor of living on your terms, right? With improved lifespan or health span. Um, so that, that's kind of the downside is I think there's a lot of biohackers out there that use that term, like a way of skipping around things like, yeah, I'll just get my cold plunge and then I can go eat donuts, right? I know they're really not saying that, but that's kind of like an extreme example of, you know, skipping steps and just using one thing. 
Well, I do want to circle back. I want to talk a bunch about sleep, but there's a couple of things that, that you kind of um, lit the fuse for there. One on the biohacker thing. It's funny, we have a, a, a slide in our live course and we talk about all of these habits are good for you. We list like 24 things from like, you're going to get up and you're going to get your, your sunlight. You're going to ground it. You're going to do your grounding. You're going to journal. You're going to do cold exposure and heat exposure and you're going to meditate and you're going to do all these things. And I, I totaled it up and I said that only takes four hours. And I said, now, if you're a coach, go explain that to your mom, who's got to get um, two kids off to school, make them lunches, then get to work. And like, where are they fitting that in? Right. So we have to be realistic. If you're not the biohacker, who's 20 something with who gets paid to do that for a living, some of those things are unrealistic. It doesn't mean that any of those things in, a, in, in isolation are bad. It just to your point, I think it's it's not understanding the totality of where does this fit in in terms of a grand plan. Yeah, and understanding what your individual needs are, right? Going back to the human question, right? And and that's everybody needs something different. What is that different thing, right? Some people need to work out. Some people need time to themselves. Some people need both, right? Um, and I think that's where looking at the individual and saying, in what bucket do they need to be filled? Is it cognitively, physically, socially, or emotionally, or physically, right? Like what bucket will, if I, which bucket to, should I fill to give them the best benefit or the greatest health and wellness benefit um, at that specific period of time? Okay. Now let's circle back a little bit before we move forward. Uh, yeah. Going back to the the popularity of of some of this stuff, whether it's the, oh. the the podcasts or the books or the 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 things like that, how much do you think that might be just right place, right time? Meaning that I don't know if these things came along when we started twenty five years ago, if they would have caught the fire that we had, because the time it was more of a meathead thing to go to the gym. At the time, like I remember even watching old videos or pictures of my grandparents when they got to their fifties, they weren't looking to do you know, ice plunges or things like they were basically looking to say, you know, start, you know, looking around the, the, the back nine and saying, and just get into the rocking chair. So I think it's the right place, right time where you have a population that, that is not going to settle for that, that has a different expectation for their own abilities, as well as what their lifespan and health span should look like. How, how much do you think is right place, right time? Um, I think it's more, um, I think a lot of it has to do with society and social norms, right? You know, hot springs and tubs and those things are new here. They are not new in other places around the world, right? We get kind of in the United States of myopia a little bit sometimes where we just kind of think about, well, yeah, this is like everybody's, this is really cool and this is new. And it's like, well, yeah, only if you're over here in the States. Right. Um, but other people have been doing it for a very long period of time. Right. They've seen the value of social connections. They've seen the value of, you know, hot springs or hydrotherapies or cold plunges. Right. Um, I mean, heck, look at traditional Chinese medicine. Right. You know, acupuncture is cool and accepted by insurance. Been around for thousands of years. But, you know, um, I think it's when society and social norms have evolved and changed to create that right time, right place, which you're speaking of, right? Because, you know, you mentioned your grandparents, the social norms back then, right? You graduate high school, maybe. My grandparents didn't, right? Um, you know, um, they worked. They had to drop out of school to work to support the family. That was normal, right? Children of immigrants. Um, you know, you have children. You have them at a very young age. That was normal, right? You go through this type of progression that was the societal accepted norm. And I think that's kind of where that's kind of being reshaped here um, immensely and has allowed, again, to create that right place, right time. It's like when clients say, oh, yoga is getting pretty popular. And I said, yeah, it only took 2,500 years to take off. Um, yeah. yeah. Here <laughs> right, so, and here, yeah, right? That's exactly. the thing. It's like, again, we get very myopic and think about like, you know, yeah, look at the gas prices. It's 450, right? Well, it's 13 bucks over here. <laughs> Where do you want to be? <laughs> All right. So let's talk about one of your, your specialties and, and talk about the, uh, 
the importance of, of sleep. Uh, and, and that's something that's, that's kind of been a byproduct of this trend. It's gotten a lot greater awareness. So uh, we often hear these common recommendations of how we can improve our sleep, but there's a lot of, to kind of tie it all together, there's a lot of societal factors that run contrary to these points, whether it's our work schedules, whether it's school start times, uh, being overwhelmed by technology, you feel almost sometimes like we're swimming upstream when we try to change people's sleep habits? Yes, it can be, right? Because, I mean, at the end of the day, it, it, things aren't, a client's not changing something because it's, it, it's, um, they're unreliable or it's not important to them, right? So um, if it's really, truly important to them, they'll figure out a time and figure out a way, right? 90% of the time. Um, but yeah, I mean, there, there are things with school start times that do impair with sleep. Right. And we know that, um, the research is there to support it. Um, I mean, at Stanford, when I was there, you know, Dr. Dement, Bill Dement, who was the father of sleep medicine passed away a couple of years ago, but he was the guy that discovered REM sleep. Um, his influence on the campus was so profound that the earliest class you could sign up for was 9.00 AM because the university embodied what he wanted, right? And saw the importance and the need and then it was substantiated in the research. Um, that has changed, I've heard since then, right? But, um, you know, you think about it, right? Why do schools start so early when the research says otherwise? Why do we remove PE from schools when the research says otherwise, right? We know that, my wife and I were having this conversation, right? With, with our kids going to school, and we just put them in a new school. And one of the things that we loved about it was that they did activity, then academics, activity, then academics, activity, then academics. And they have PE every single day. And what's cool about that is, you know, we know that physical activity primes cognition. So they're putting the students in a, the best place possible to accept learning. And it's the same thing that we do in our world in human performance, right? We want to put our clients in the best position possible to accept their training programs or accept their rehab programs, right? Um, and that's really what it comes down to. So um, I think society, going back to that, has to start making some changes, um, which is always difficult to do. Um, but I think eventually that will, we'll see that change. But it is like swimming upstream many times, right? Um, yeah. So talking about making an impact at, at schools, I, I want to talk about some of the impact you made at Stanford with with uh, nutrition. But let's keep going with sleep for a minute. Yep. Uh, one of the things that always stood out with with uh, sleep research is I remember there was about ten years ago there was a big article in the Guardian, and it featured who was a guy who was a former golf pro and in uh, betting industry guy. Uh, by the name of Nick Littlehills. Um, and he was a sleep coach that was hired by a lot of the top European soccer uh, players and clubs. And he was working with Ronaldo. And his whole job was to basically go in advance of wherever that team was going to be playing and to make sure each player's room was set up to their specific sleep specifications that, that were ideal for them. So how have you seen high-level sports embrace the importance of sleep with their athletes? Um, they've embraced it a lot. Right. I mean, they're making changes. Every organization is different. Right. So it really depends on, the, on what the. The tenor of the organization is right. Um, but there are many that are very forward thinking and are thinking like that. Right. Um, making sure they're traveling at the optimal times, making sure do they stay the night or do they fly the next morning, uh, making sure rooms are set up, um, you know, making sure that you know, they're monitoring sleep making sure that they're taking any sleep illnesses off the table, right? Um, de deploying education to the athletes, deploying education to the athletes who have kids, right? To help the spouse and the athlete, right? So these, they are embracing this. A lot of sports teams are already, have been doing this for a number of years, right? Um, but, you know, um, yeah, so it, people are embracing it and people are seeing that it's impact. And it, and it helps too when you have people like, you know, LeBron James saying, hey, I get my 12 hours of sleep or whatever it is he gets, right? I just made that up, but you know, I don't know if it was like 10, 11 or 12, whatever, right? You know, these, these big time athletes that talk about taking a nap and getting their rest as opposed to the I'll sleep and I'll die type of mentality, which you have. Hey, everybody, a quick break in the action here. Hope you're enjoying the show and we appreciate you listening. 
We're working hard to bring you the highest quality content and best guests every single week. So if you could do us a big favor and go and like and subscribe to the show on whatever platform you get your podcasts on, it would be greatly appreciated. Be sure to listen at the end of the show also to find out where you can find out more information about our courses, as well as a special discount code for all our listeners. Thanks again, and let's get back to the show. All right, so before we move on from sleep, the um, slippery slope of sleep tracking. Uh, mm -hmm. Talk a little bit about the accuracy and when it has benefits and when it actually could be detrimental in some cases. Yeah, so, you know, that, that's one of the things which I think has also allowed, you know, um, people to put their heads around sleep, right, is the fact that we can kind of quantify it now um, outside of a lab. And when you mention accuracy, how well do we quantify it? And we're pretty good, right? We're pretty good at saying, this is when you fell asleep. This is how long it took you to fall asleep. This is how long you were asleep. And this is how many times you maybe woke up in the middle of the night, right? They're not perfect. You know, every piece of technology is slightly different. An aura ring is gonna be a little different than a whoop, gonna be different from a ready band, gonna be different from a Fitbit going to be different from an Apple watch, whatever, everything, every group is going to have its own secret sauce of an algorithm. And with that algorithm is going to come variances of error, right? They're going to get you in the ballpark, right? Um, I would not pay attention to any, any devices ability to tell you how much REM you received, deep sleep, stage one, stage two, right? Any of those things. Do they all have them? Yes. Why do they have them? Because it gives them a competitive advantage in the market. So why do the other people put them on their you know, product? So they're not left behind, right? So the only thing I would rely upon is really like sleep quantity and sleep quality. And even then it's gonna be off a little bit, but I think it's close enough, close enough for the general population. I personally wear an aura ring it's better than a whoop. Um, not by much, but it's better. So I prefer that. Um, and I look at my sleep every night, right? I see, okay, how was my sleep? How was my, you know, those, I look at my nighttime physiology too, which, you know, I take with a grain of salt. Um, but yeah, so it does give you good insights into how long it took you to sleep, how long you slept, plus or minus maybe 20 minutes, 30 minutes, right? And how many awakenings you had a night. Um, so it's, it's, it's helpful. It can be hurtful to your point, right? It can be hurtful if you obsess over it. Um, yeah, like anything. Then maybe you're not somebody who wants to track your sleep. Now, one of the things in trying to, to ease people out of that obsession is to not look at things uh, in isolation and whether we've had these conversations about HRV with people like Don Moxley and Joel Jameson and saying like, you can't wrap all your, your uh, thoughts into one recovery score or one thing. It's more about trends, right? And it's about looking and seeing, okay, well, I have somebody who's not responding to my training and then let's investigate your sleep. And we say, well, your sleep quality, your sleep quantity is terrible. Training the, changing the training is going to be so I just adjust, just adjust to the fact that you just have lack of recoverability. So talk a little bit about how we shouldn't take snapshots and like, what's a good trend? Like what's a good, like over a week, over a month, like what are we really looking to grasp from that information? Well, I mean, from a trend standpoint, it's like, I just pay attention to it. Are your numbers going up or going down? And is the up or down a positive or negative number, right? Like is my sleep quality going up? Good. That's a good thing. Is my sleep quality going down? Nah, okay. Right now you can add, you need to add context to that from a daily standpoint. Right. Cause again, what do, what does wearable technology do? It informs you about your behaviors, habits, and choices. That's it. Right. So I wake up in the morning, I look at my sleep. Um, my sleep was eh, okay. Last night, I didn't get a lot of sleep last night. Why? Oh, I stayed up late and watched the women's national team play in the World Cup. All right. So I stayed up till just past 11 on the East Coast. Okay. There's my context. I'm not going to worry about it. Right. And that's the other thing is you try to add context to understand why your physiology or sleep has been disrupted. That's valuable. Right. From a trend standpoint, 
like as you mentioned with the HRV, well, what is my baseline? Once I establish that trend for over a long period of time, we'll say a month, what is my trend? Where do I live? Okay, if it's me, I live like right around 80, right? If it's my wife, she's consistently at 255. True story, right? And so it's like, you know, not getting into the comparison thing because that's very dangerous too, right? Is now is my HRV going up or down? Okay, why? Right? Let me think about why it might go down. If I can't give a reason, I'm still not going to panic, right? Something happened, whatever it was, right? Could have been something that a noise in the middle of the night disrupted my sleep and I didn't recognize it, didn't wake me up, didn't perceive it, but it's enough to change my physiology and change my heart rate, right? Which could throw off my HRV. Um, or maybe I'm getting sick or whatever, right? So I think it just gives you, again, makes you curious. It should lead you to ask the next question. It shouldn't answer the question for you. Well, I never thought I'd say this, but I have total HRV envy with your wife. <laughs> right? She's going to live that's, forever. That's, unbe that's unbelievable. Yeah, so yeah. Uh, let's circle back to something I teased earlier. So uh, you were the creator of a, a highly acclaimed program called Performance-Based Dining at Stanford. Yeah. Explain what that is. So this is like one of my things, right? This is like, I always believe there's a better way. And the way we're currently doing things, I don't think that's the answer. You can always get better. So when I was looking at how they do food at colleges, universities, or anywhere, I'm like, there's got to be a better way than this red, yellow, green type of list of here's your foods. Here's your red foods. Here's your yellow foods. Here's your green foods. I cannot stand that. Um, the reason I don't like it is because, sure, there might be a time where red, a donut is going to be always red from a physical domain standpoint, from a cognitive, an emotional, a social standpoint, a donut could be green. Okay, let me explain. Like, if I take my child to have donut, to have a donut on Friday mornings before school, what does that do for us? That creates a social and emotional connection and a cognitive one. The other thing it does, it takes me back because my parents did that with me on Friday mornings. My mom would take me to school because she taught at school and we'd stop and get donuts every morning, not every morning, every Friday morning, right? And so there's a, a benefit there from a cognitive standpoint. So doing that, not every day, not all day, but doing that brings about a positive change. So that's why I don't like the red, yellow, green thing, right? It's just, it doesn't really make sense. It's very one dimensional. So I was like, what if there is a better way of doing this dining? So looking outside of the silo, talk to, you know, residential dining services. We talked talk to the Culinary Institute of America. We brought in a registered dietitian. Uh, we brought in Stanford hospitals and some researchers there who study, you know, nutrition. We brought in their sustainability experts. So we pulled in all these different domains and said, we want to just do this a little bit better. So this creation of mine was like, all right, let's label foods differently. So we label foods based upon anti-inflammatory. We label foods based upon brain performance, enhanced immunity, so that if you're, you know, if kids are getting sick, it's wintertime and finals are coming up pick enhanced immunity and brain performance, those are gonna be your preferred types of foods, right? If you're an athlete, maybe you wanna to go towards sports performance or anti-inflammatory if you're trying to recover, right? So that's how foods were labeled. Um, so what we did was we brought this, it's almost like chopped. Here are the foods you should be cooking with for these types of things. We passed it over to the chefs and let them do their job. I'm not telling them how to cook. I'm just giving them a pantry of items and telling them what each of these do. And it was great to sit in a room and say, you know, cinnamon is anti-inflammatory and this and that. And he's like, so I'm envisioning like, a, you know, a free range chicken breast, you know, um, stuffed with pomegranate with like, you know, like a cinnamon glaze, something like that. I was like, that sounds amazing. Great, you guys get it. So um, they tried it at one dining hall and uh, it was a hit. Like it was like super popular because again, it just wasn't for athletes. It was for everybody because everybody's really trying to improve their performance. 
And um, to the point, it was so successful to the point where they had to actually tell students to go back to their normal assigned cafeterias by their dorms because they were just getting overwhelmed. Um, it's just a different way of looking at things. So yeah, that was the, the whole performance dining thing. That's very cool. Now, is this something that you've seen now start to get adopted in other places? Yeah. And that's what, that's the hope, right? The hope is that others will take it, not replicate it, but iterate off of it and make it better. Right. Cause that's the whole thing. I, while that was very innovative at the time and unique, I knew that wasn't always just going to be the way to do it. So was there a way that we could make it better, right? Somebody else could make it better and iterate off of that to grow it, kind of like the car, right? The Model T was the first one, but it wasn't like, now look at the iterations we have from Mercedes and Audi and you know, all these different things of, yeah, people are making it better and that's what you want. I, my kids are, are going to be jealous when they hear this. They're one just graduated, and the other one's in college, and they get basically one step above prison food uh, where yeah. they are. So it's it's not good at all. And then you wonder why kids can barely stay awake in class. Um, let's shift gears a little bit. And this is something you've kind of alluded to as a theme throughout the show. Is uh, you say that sustainable high performance is more than physical, and to truly achieve this, one must seek to elevate cognitive, physical, social, and emotional domains. Uh, those are the big four. All are important, interconnected, and there's no hierarchy to them. Um, explain what you mean by this and what do you feel kind of would be step one in kind of solving uh, that puzzle for any individual? Yeah, so so the genesis of that, those four domains came from some work that I was doing with our, with our Department of Defense. Um, they asked me to develop a framework to assess soldier performance. I said, well, I can't do that. I said, we can do human performance, because at the end of the day, soldiers are human, warfighters are human. Um, and that's if we accelerate them and enhance them as humans, then the likelihood of them being enhanced as a warfighter is increased, right? Any, anything, right? Take a sport, better human, better basketball player, better human, better physician, better human, better stay-at-home dad, whatever it is, right? Um, so... I wasn't sure where to start. And it was like, okay, if I wanted to be able to just measure, if, if five random people were put in front of me and they said, which one's going to make a free throw at the half of a basketball game, who would you pick? I'm like, well, here's what I would want to know. So I started writing all these different things down and connecting them. But at the end of the day, what we came up with was that there are four anchors or four domains of human performance, right? And they're interconnected. So there's the physical domain, which we live in most of the time, right? Um, in our professions. There's the cognitive domain, there's the social and the emotional. And because they're all interconnected, they all pull on one another. And we've all felt that, we've all experienced it. You know, we've all been kind of, you know, upset, maybe emotionally. And it's impacted how we perform cognitively, right? It impacts how we want to socialize. It impacts whether or not we want to work out or not, right? Or maybe it impacts our sleep, physical domain. Um, We've all, you know, impact, we've all lifted weights and, you know, trained and those types of things. And that has a positive impact on our emotions or positive impact on our cognition, right? So all these things are interconnected and they all pull upon one another. So really to achieve sustainable high performance, my point was that you have to consider all of them, right? We usually think physical domain because we can see it as tangible. We can train, right? They're getting better physically, but what is the detriment or improvement to the other three domains, right? Um, and that's why I brought up like the donut example, right? Well, physically it may not be your best bet, but it may be a net positive because you're boosting all three of the other domains, right? Um, sitting around the, you know, you're Italian, right? <laughs> sitting around the table with everybody enjoying good food is great, but there's always that one relative who's trying to watch their weight and they don't have dessert right? Everybody else is having a blast, but that relative is just sitting there and they feel isolated, right? There's probably a net, a negative, right? To that experience. But because they're so worried about the physical domain and not eating a piece of cake or a cannoli, right? They're, they're, they're missing out on really the good stuff. So, you know, training should be considered in the four domains. Recovery should be considered in the four domains, Right. Um, nutrition should be looked through via the four domains. 
just giving each of those consideration is what I was trying to say. So there's a lot of gold and I'm going to pick through the nuggets and some of them. First of all, I never trust anybody who denies the cannoli. First of all, uh, <laughs> second of all, um, there's a the lot of overlap where this transcends to is to, to your point is there's a, a bunch of books that I've read in, in the last six months that they all kind of landed on the same place. They were all about longevity. There was a book called Ikigai where they studied uh, uh, people uh, in over in Okinawa who lived and thrived and, into their uh, triple digits. Uh, there was um, Keep Sharp by Dr. Sanjay Gupta talking about brain health, but it really was overall health. And then there's there's obviously there's uh, Outlive by Peter Atia, And a lot of them came down on these those same bullet points of all these people who thrived to that age they didn't have a common diet. They didn't have a common exercise routine, but they had these things. They were active. They were social. They were doing all those things. You're talking about, you know, uh, the Italian background in Sardinia. That's one of the big things that the town eats together. They all have they all have their meals together, and so there is that social aspect. And and like one of the ways that I kind of implement nutrition with with kids, with like high school and college kids, is I say, you know, if you can follow the 80-20 rule of 80% of the time you do, you follow these, these kind of bullet points, the other 20% have whatever you want. And I said, the easy way to do that is if you do the math, if you should be having roughly say four meals a day times seven days, that gives you about five meals where you can have whatever you want. And I said, so start Monday with five magic tickets in your pocket. And then if you get to Wednesday and all your buddies are going out for pizza, don't sit there like a weirdo and eat a salad and, and, you know, and a dry cracker, like have a slice of pizza and cash in one of your tickets and don't think about it again. Enjoy it. Yeah. If you get to yeah. the end of the week, blow, you know, and you're going to a game or a tailgate or a party, blow your tickets because they run out on Sunday night. And so it allows it to be a little bit more feasible to realize that that one slice of pizza probably didn't make a dent that much. And if it did, if it's that much of a difference, well, your 80-20 is now 90-10. Your 80-20 is now maybe you have no margin for, but that's really in short frames. If I have an athlete who really has to make weight for something or somebody who's really trying to, to dial in for one thing, but that's a short really short window in terms of the scheme of things. Yeah. And the net positive from a social emotional standpoint is probably outweighs the negative of the physical, right? It could even offset it, right? If you think about it, um, that psychological stress of not doing that probably did more harm than the psychological stress of, of enjoying the pizza with friends. Right. And I think that's, that's the key, you know, to the when you mentioned Okinawa, you know, Loma Linda, California, Sardinia, all those blue zones, right, where people live in their centenarians, right, that the danger is that people cherry pick, right, and they don't consider everything like you mentioned, right, they don't consider that they eat together, the eating is good, right, but they pull Mediterranean diet, that's what they latch on to, they forget about the social connections, the sense of belonging, the purpose in life, right, all of these other things, you know, going back to the 80s and the Ornish diet, right, with like for heart health, right, the big Dean Ornish diet, there were five components in that study. Uh, one just happened to be the low fat, right? But that's the only thing that everybody latched onto. There was a meditation component, there was an exercise component, and there was social component, right? There were so many other components to it that just were dismissed and people gravitated toward low fat. Right. And that's where I think sometimes things get lost in translation. We're like, oh, yeah, Sardinia, don't they have the highest amount of resveratrol in their wine? That's what it is. So I'm going to take resveratrol pills. Right. But they dismiss the other six things that you spoke about. Now, the other thing that you said in there that, that I really uh, kind of latched on to is you said better human equals better blank. Right. So mm -hmm. basketball player, you know, yep. uh, 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 whatever it may be. So yep. could we also look at the tie in between resiliency and performance and say that the more we build resiliency, the more we improve performance and or are there some times where they can be actually be antithetical? Well, I, you know, I think performance is it's Performance varies, right? What is performance? Everybody's going to be different, right? Or like I said, for the, the barista, what is performance? For the housekeeper, what is performance? For the stay-at-home dad, what is performance, right? So, you know, understanding what that is, is, is the first step in, in the game, right? And that was one of the first things I had to do for the government, right? It's like, everybody's talking about performance. I'm like, do you guys have a definition? It's crickets, 
right? Nobody, nobody had a definition for performance. Nobody had a definition of readiness, but yet they talked about it like as if it was this known thing, right? And I said, well, what are we talking about, right? Um, not afraid to ask the question. But so I think that's where you have to get first is like, well, what does resilience look like? And what does performance look like? And are we talking about enhancing performance or optimizing performance? Because those are two different things. Enhancing is enhancing you and making you better. Optimizing is getting the very best out of the one particular point in time at your particular condition, right? Those two have to be separated as well because those are very different, right? If I'm a sleep deprived, stay at home dad, and how am I gonna be optimized throughout this day? So how can I optimize my performance given my current state? It might be caffeine, right? It, it might be some exercise, right? Something like that. Um, I'm not enhancing my performance. I'm just trying to optimize it. So going back to your point, um, we, I think we need to come up with a working and operating definition of what performance is and what resilience is. Um, but yeah, I think the two could work against each other in specific times given a lot of different context. Well, and talking about times, it also, I would imagine, be more weighted during certain points along the timeline. Whereas if I look at the long-term athletic development of a specific athlete, that there's really a lot of uh, enriched soil in which we can, we can really enhance performance early on. And then as they progress through, then it's kind of optimizing. And then once they get to a certain point, when I worked, you know, with, with professional and, and, and really high level athletes, your biggest job was just making them, let them just keep going back out there and don't screw them up. So does that, does that kind of change also along that timeline for an athlete? Yeah, absolutely. You know, timeline, career longevity, where they are in their career will change that, um, where they are at a season and day to day, right? Like, and you see this, the, the downside of this with our, uh, you know, military population, first responders and things like that. These people are taught to be very hypervigilant, right? And they're taught to be that way for a very specific reason. So when time calls, they can perform their job, right? You want to be hypervigilant on a mission, to wherever, right? You don't need to be hypervigilant when you're at home on the couch watching the six o'clock news. You don't need it. So being redlined the whole time and not being taught the ebb and flow, not being taught how to downregulate um, for the sake of performance creates a, obviously a, a negative overall impact. <laughs> That brings up an interesting. That brings up an interesting point that we've had this discussion with some other guests. Is is the art, uh, and and I don't think it's spoken about enough. What you just said is the art of being able to manage states and the art of being able to go from from zero to ten to simmer at a five to be able to adjust your your temperature and be able to do that. And, you know, you look at examples in in sports where. The, the uh, famous stories of Barry Sanders, you know, quite possibly the greatest running back ever would fall asleep on the bench when the defense was on the field um, and then be able to get up and turn it on and go. Um, that ability to kind of be on and off. And I need you to be, if I'm working with baseball, you know, a baseball pitcher, I need you up until the second you start your delivery, I want you Zen-like. And then once that delivery starts, I need you to be a, you know, an absolute raging lunatic until that ball comes out of your hand. So teaching those states, what are some of the ways to take going back and tying it into your, your four pillars? What are some of the strategies that you found have been successful to get people to understand and learn how to manipulate their own states? It's, it's understanding what bucket do they need to fill going back to the cognitive, physical, social, and emotional standpoint, right? Like for some people, it could be playing with their kids. For some people, exercise does that. For some people, they like to meditate or do yoga. Some people like group fitness, but if you have an introvert, they're not going to want to do group fitness nor recover in a group fitness setting, right? They're going to want to go off and do their own thing, right? So that's that back to the end of one thing and really understanding what does your client, what does your athlete need? What bucket do they need filled and how does that bucket need to be filled with people, without people, right? Or, or whatever. So, you know, understanding that 
And this is something I did for uh, Michelle Dalcourt and Institute of Motion. And I did the help them develop their 4Q recovery model. We looked at that and we planned out recovery protocols for introverts, for extroverts, for people that needed social, more social, more emotional, more cognitive, more physical. And we did that for everybody um, to kind of educate those people taking that course on um, different methods or to consider different things, maybe not different methods, but to consider deploying them at different times for specific individuals and their individual needs. That's because that's truly what personal training is. It's personal. That's awesome. And, and you're definitely the rock going across the pond, making ripples all over the place in, <laughs> in, in lots of different ways. So I want to know as we kind of get towards the end here, what, what's next on the horizon? What, what's the next ripple you're looking to make? Um, so I mean, my job at JAG is chief innovation officer. So like I'm having fun doing a lot of cool projects that relate to human performance that I've always wanted to do. Um, and the thing I love about JAG and the, the founder, Joe Gomes, is that he loves it. He allows it. He's like, dude, I want you just to tell me what you think and we'll chase him down, um, which is fantastic. So, um, yeah, I'm working on a lot of different projects from recovery to data decision to uh, yeah, just a lot of different things in the world of performance that can hopefully make things easier for people and to get people to provoke some thought. And for allow people to iterate on again, like the nutrition thing and figure out a better way. So, yeah. And then who's the end user with that? Anybody, anybody with any human. Are you human? Yes, they're good. <laughs> that only narrows it down to a couple billion. So you got a pretty good shot there. Right? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. That yeah. is awesome. So I, I could uh, I could talk to you all day, and but I don't want to take up too much of your time. And I really appreciate you coming on and, and sharing your thoughts with us. And And this has been absolutely awesome. No, I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. When I saw your name pop up, I was like, oh, of course, no, no brainer. Of course, I'll do this. So yeah, it, it, was, it was a pleasure to see you again. Yeah, fantastic. Great seeing you again. And we want to thank you all for listening. And this has been the Principles of Performance Podcast. Thank you for listening to the Principles of Performance Podcast. If you've enjoyed our content, please like and share on your social media outlets, as well as subscribe and give us a review on YouTube, Apple Podcasts, or whatever your preferred platform is to listen to. For more information on the principles of program design courses and workshops, visit us at www.principlesofprogramdesign.com and follow us on all of the social media channels where we post new content every day. To save 10% on any PPD courses, enter the discount code PRINCIPLESPODCAST10 at checkout. If you have any questions we can answer or suggestions for the show, you can email us at info at principlesofprogramdesign.com or message us on social media. Thank you again for your support.